Thanks for pressing play. Imagine the life you love, the freedoms you enjoy, the opportunities you have, the safety and security you take for granted, all vaporize in a matter of days. Imagine that many in your family, friends, and many loved ones are now hostages of an evil regime, and now that happened in a matter of days. Our guest today doesn't have to imagine any of that. This is one of the most powerful, thought-provoking, and uh, in some cases soul-crushing, yet hopeful podcasts I think you'll ever hear. One of the things that has been uh, lost in all of the discussion in the United States about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is there are very real human beings, just like you and me, 35 million of them, who've been left behind. Our guest today is Narula Akbari. He's an entrepreneur, founder and CEO of a company called Roslin.ai, and they are on a mission to use advanced technology to make a difference for students and education. He's also a former Afghan refugee living in the United States of America. Right now, as we speak, Noor is fighting to get about 20 members of his family out of Kabul, Afghanistan. And the future for his loved ones. And um, the 35 million Afghanis and the roughly 4 million living in Kabul is terrifyingly uncertain. Our hope is that this dialogue will help humanize the plight of the very real people in Afghanistan who are suffering right now, who want out. And that this very real dialogue will be shared, emailed, tweeted, and posted broadly in the United States. And I know this is crazy, and I know many people won't, but I'd ask you to consider specifically emailing this podcast to your member of Congress your senator, and yes, even President Biden himself. Because no matter what you think about the U.S.'s withdrawal in Afghanistan, there are now 35 million Afghanis who are experiencing the most horrifying change imaginable in their lives through no fault of their own. Now, Noor tells us, as I just mentioned, there are about 4 million people in Kabul, many of whom helped in some way or work directly for the U.S., who are now facing a terrifying reality in the Taliban. Now, Noor grew up in uh, poor, Civil War-era Afghanistan. His catalyst for his own personal transformation was the gift of a computer. That first computer empowered Noor to ultimately become an entrepreneur. Today, he's a three-time successful entrepreneur. While he was still in Afghanistan, he worked as a translator and a political advisor for the U.S. military. And then he emigrated to the United States. So look, no matter what you think about what you know about what's going on in Afghanistan, I promise this conversation you're about to hear will change you and will open your eyes. And uh, while at times this is a tough conversation, I want you to know it's also very uplifting. Nor is an extraordinary guy. And pay special attention to his thoughts on why he thinks the U.S. is more in danger now than it was before the withdrawal, and why he feels blessed to be in the United States. And he's also going to tell you in detail what life is really like under Taliban rule. 
This is Christopher Lockett, Follier Different, and we are on a mission to showcase the power of real dialogues. We believe that only through real conversation can we gain real understanding and make our world a different place. That's exactly what you're about to hear. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Noor, it sure is great to see you. Great to see you as well, Christopher. Thank you for inviting me, and it's an honor to meet you. It's an honor to meet you, too. Um, now, if it's okay with you, I, I'd like to start by asking, um, how's your family? Terrified. They're currently in Afghanistan, in Kabul. They are uh, two or three of my uh, sisters came together in our house, uh, my father's house, uh, and it's, it's a bigger house. And uh, they recently went back to their houses because uh, everybody thought, oh, my God, uh, a massacre is going to happen. They're so terrified, uh, you can't trust the terrorists, no matter what uh, what they say. So the family does not trust the Taliban? No. Uh, how can they? Uh, when uh, they took over uh, a province in, 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 in the south, they massacred 100 people. And they're doing the same thing in the Panjshir Valley right now. When there is no cameras, they go uh, after those who they believe uh, have aided the infidels and, and the foreigners. And... They killed them. Now, they don't do that currently in Kabul. And the main reason is there are cell phones out there. Uh, they haven't banned the Internet yet. So they, people can take pictures and, uh, and that will cause them trouble with the international community. But, but their practice has always been to come after their enemies, kill them and take revenge. So, uh, no, you can't trust the terrorists. We've been hearing in the media here, Noor, that... The Taliban has said they are not going to do that, that uh, they're going to sort of turn the page and there will be no uh, attack on Afghanis who maybe were translators or in, in one way or another were supportive of the American effort there. What I hear you saying is if, if there are no cell phones around, that's not true. That is correct. I hope they, they stick to that. I hope that is true. At least people can can stay in their homes and uh, go on with their lives uh, no matter uh, how unhappy they are but if, if you don't believe something uh, and you're doing it uh, for the cameras it is temporary so the moment you get to a place where people are not watching you're going to do what your uh, god tells you what your religion tells you and their religion tells them that everybody who worked with the US um, military uh, with the Afghan government are enemies and they must be killed. Wow. Um, so walk me through, Noor, um, the family members you currently have back home in Afghanistan who you're trying to get out. So you've got your three sisters, your father, and, and, and who else? Actually, uh, fortunately, my father is here, but I have uh, two sisters there and a sister-in-law, uh, in and uh, my uncles are there as well. My older sister was a professor. Uh, and uh, an English teacher, and uh, she had this secret uh, girls' school hosting uh, that school and teaching that school for girls in our home secretly uh, when the Taliban were last uh, around. But now, during the last 20 years, she, she was uh, teaching mathematics and also teaching uh, English for, for girls. And she was also uh, working for my company as a, as a language assessment expert. 
she uh, tested a lot of uh, linguists who worked ended up working with the U.S. military. So she's pretty recognized in that way. Her husband is also was also working with the U.S. military. So, and the most terrifying thing is that they're associated with me, and I am a pretty recognized uh, name there, uh, a quote unquote, uh, an American puppet and a CIA agent. So, yes, uh, you you. Um you're behaving exactly like CIA agents I have met before. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you seem like to me, like a, a lot of uh, legendary entrepreneurs trying to build a new category and a new company to me, but. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And so you're trying to get out. I just want to understand how many folks roughly you're trying to get out. It sounds like maybe half a dozen or so. Um, or, or, or around 20. Uh, around 20 with, with, with the children, two of my sisters, a sister-in-law and, and, and my uncle. These are the people I want to take, get out because they, they are the ones who may be at most harm. But, you know, you can't do a, a, anything about you know, your aunts and, and the rest of them. So, so yeah, a few, a, 20. 20. And, and more if you could. I, I, I get a sense you're saying yes. Yes, I have friends who have worked with Afghan government, who work with the U.S. military. Uh, I have relatives who did that. Uh, I have neighbors who are in, in grave danger. Basically, Kabul is a city of around uh, 4 million people, and uh, they all, in some way, shape, or form, were working in, either with the U.S. government, their projects, uh, the Afghan government, international organizations, uh, in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, according to the uh, to to their ideology, and and they're all, you know, enemies. So, so yes, there's quite a few people I would I would love to get uh, get out if I could. So let me make sure I understand this, Noor. You think there might be approximately four million people, Afghanis, in Kabul, who were in one way or another supporting, helping, working for, etc. Um, the U.S. at various times, who would be considered now by the Taliban to be their enemy and who would be uh, in, in, in under threat of losing their lives or being tortured or what have you. Um, there's approximately 4 million folks in Kabul who uh, worked with Americans. No, 4 million residents, right? Uh, and if you're living in Kabul, it's a fairly expensive city uh, compared to other uh, cities. Uh, so you must have a job, a, a well-paying job or have a business. So if you look at Kabul in the last 20 years, the entire economy was fueled by the international presence there, either to through government or through humanitarian projects or through development projects. You know, one way or another, uh, it, it was supported by the U.S. And, and these folks uh, in the city who are literate, who may speak English, who uh, have skills, have been working with these projects. And they are the ones who are opposed to their government, to an authoritarian uh, religious government, uh, the way uh, Taliban are, are, are imposing. So uh, I'm not saying all 4 million, but these these uh, 4 million people, either them, you know themselves or their family members, in some way supported a project that's supported by the U.S. or, or international forces. I see. And I know, of course, you can't speak for 4 million people, but what would your gut sense be as to uh, how many of those people would want to uh, leave Afghanistan for some other part of the world right now? Do you have, do you have an idea about that? Uh, I can tell you, 
they have all lived a life under the previous regime of, of Taliban. And let me tell you what that was like. When you were going for entertainment for to watch soccer, right after soccer, there were public executions, uh, public executions of people uh, or uh, stoning of people or beating of women. You would witness that. You would be walking in downtown Kabul and you would see a hand cut from the, the uh, people's wrists hanging uh, under the traffic sign. Women did not have the ability to walk around without men or without that, uh, that burqa. It was pretty brutal. Uh, you, could, you didn't have any personal freedom. The economy was bad. People were walking around like zombies. And, and everybody remembers that. So now that they're back, they, they're trying to rebrand themselves, but nobody trusts them. And they're afraid that that same regime will come back. And now we are not the same people. We have lived 20 years in a democracy. We had freedom of press. We have uh, uh, freedom of religion. We had a, a somewhat democratic society. Uh, women uh, were able to be part of the, uh, be in, in the parliament and cabinet. They were politicians. So we, we experienced that. And now we are back to, to, to that barbarian regime that we experienced for five years. I could tell you the majority of the people want to leave especially now that they are so powerful. There's no hope that they would be removed because the world compromised, the world accepted them. Wow. So so uh, given the picture you just painted, I, I can't imagine anybody wanting to live in such a place. It sounds, I mean, I, it sounds like hell on earth, nothing I can imagine. Yes, it really was. We, we talk about North Korea and we talk about other uh, societies, but t- Taliban, in my opinion, uh, were worse uh, than, than than any of these evil regimes, because you know they they went in deep into your personal life. I remember uh, walking in, in downtown, and they stopped uh, me, and they were looking uh, at my armpits to see if it's the same the length that that religion allows. I mean, they go deep. And you know, restrict you and and, and they police everything. Uh, so there, there was no happiness. It was just some just some people walking around and and eating and sleeping and just just you know waiting for death basically because uh, there was no happiness. There was nothing that they were looking forward to. Again, I I, I remember as a kid those public executions, and I was always worried that, oh my God, what happens if somebody thinks that, uh, that, that, that there's a misunderstanding and I'm caught by Taliban and they take me and you know, uh, do this to me? It, it was traumatic. You had those thoughts as a child. Yes, absolutely. So if you see on daily basis people's hands being cut from the wrist uh, for, for stealing, right? And some of them uh, may have been thieves. Some of them may not have been. Who knows? There was no justice system. There was no due process, right? Uh, and if you see women being hit with sticks and stoned because they may or may not have had an affair, uh, if you see people getting tortured in, in, in many ways for crimes that they may or may not have committed, you wonder, right, what if somebody tells them and gives them a tip uh, about me? And because there's no due process, you know, th- this could happen to me. 
so, so it, it was pretty traumatic. Um, I remember they were eating in a restaurant in, in downtown, and I was I was eating this this liver kebab, which which which, which I loved very much, and. While eating, I looked away from the window and I saw a hand, a hand hanging from a traffic light. And when I looked at it, it was an actual hand. It was the hand that was cut from the wrist of some some alleged uh, thief. I mean, that was the moment that I never ever ate that food again. It was it affected me so much that I was I came home. I was oh my god, mother! I saw I saw a hand. So. So it was it was pretty traumatic. How old were you at the time, Noor? I was probably thirteen or fourteen. It, it was even more difficult for the woman, uh, right? You you could not walk um, because because they they would watch they would watch them if they had if they see um, if, if they saw their a little bit of their feet under the the, the hijab uh, they would they would hit them. And I, I never wanted to go out with my mother or my sister because. Because at any time they could they could do that to her, and I and I didn't want to experience that. So, you know, imagine millions of people just living in a society where somebody can come in and uh, take you away and beat you and and, and torture you at any time. I, I I was sneaking sometimes to go uh, to my uncle's house. He had the secret uh, VCR that that he was playing the Bollywood movies and. And, and I would go there once a week, and that was the only entertainment I was getting, watching that that Bollywood movie. And then they found out, and they they came and they took that away. They beat at my uncle and broke all, all all of that as well. No music. Imagine that. No music. So when uh, 9/11 happened, we couldn't understand it at that time. What what's happening? But we knew that the U.S. is attacking uh, the Taliban, and initially we were very scared because you know. We went through this trauma of of civil war and and bombs, but then the radio told uh, said that the American bombers are very very uh, precise. So so we would come out uh, on the top of the, our roofs and we would see these B fifty twos hit Taliban uh, military uh, locations, and then a couple of days later uh, they were gone and they were gone. And when I woke up. Uh, one morning, I, I went out and I saw these these Northern Alliance uh, soldiers, and I didn't know what to do because you know five years of trauma. But the first thing I saw was uh, a guy shaved his beard, like right there and then, and and celebrated. I was like, wow, shaving your beard was a crime, crime punishable by prison and punishable by you know physical beating. Right. So so I saw that guy and um, I saw women taking away their burqas. And so it, it was hard to process. But, you know, slowly I found out that, yeah, now I can see now I can go and watch Bollywood movies and public. So the, these these people took all of their VCRs uh, into the public places with their with their uh, TVs and people were gather and watch watch these movies so that was so liberating it, it was it was the feeling was so amazing and and gave everybody so much hope that, that it was unbelievable you know i, I began buying uh, pants and and i and i built this 
this ridiculous suit. Nobody knew how to build suits in, in, in Kabul. Uh, so, so I found a guy who, who, who built this suit, uh, uh, suit for me and I wore it. Uh, it was a ridiculous suit, but it was so amazing to, to, to wear that. So this 20 years gave people lots of hope and it changed lots of lives. But it was unfortunate to, to do all of that, spend trillions of dollars, uh, and then uh, half a million lives and replace Taliban with Taliban. It was, it was just, you know, it's, it's, I, 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 I don't understand it. It's shocking. Yes. And, and I, I want to get back to that. But for a sec, can we just go back to your family? So um, I know you've been working with the U.S. officials, yes? Yes. And you've been in contact with the State Department, yes? Yes, um, yes. I was working with uh, with the U.S. military initially as a as a um, as an editor, uh, a translator, and then as a political and and cultural advisor to to the, to the U.S. leadership in in Kabul. So through that, I, I've had some some connections. I, I tried my best to get a hold of them to see if they can help me uh, get my family out. Uh, Julie, our amazing investor, uh, was able to make. Uh, some connections and, and to see if they can, you know, if we can get the family out, but we haven't been successful. And, and I don't want you to say anything you don't want to say, but I have to ask how helpful have, has the U S state department and other U S officials been in terms of giving you comfort that they're um, going to get these 20 folks that you love that supported you and supported um, the U S in one form or another. How confident are you that those uh, 20 people you love are going to get out? I am uh, not confident at all. <laughs> I, I was, I was, I was very hopeful, and I'm still um, working with some amazing people who uh, have been uh, very, very helpful, and they did everything they could. But, but uh, I think it, it is a bit late now. Um, so, so uh, I, I, I don't. I think the State Department is overwhelmed. I don't know uh, if they have a plan to to get these people out. Um, uh, currently, the evacuation in my, uh, from what I hear, is over. Uh, I don't think uh, evacuations uh, are happening anymore. So, to the best of your knowledge, there's nobody working on getting your 20 loved ones out anymore. Well, th- there's one uh, a lady, Erica, who was introduced to me by Julie. She is working on it, but but all of her effort is dependent on on the negotiation between the U.S. government and the Taliban to see. If they allow they allow these planes to take off uh, right now, uh, from what I know, it is that that's a difficult thing to do. So they're trying, but but I don't think uh, the U.S. has you know footprint there. So when you don't have footprint and you don't have leverage, you, you cannot rely on Taliban's mercy to to tell you whether you can or can't uh, fly away. And, and just so I understand the picture. Uh, with the four million or so people who live in Kabul, as you said, m- many of them have one connection or another or have a family member who had a connection or another to the U.S. The Taliban have said publicly they're they're going to give all those people amnesty, but you don't believe it. No, I do not. I do not. As I said, they just before they enter Kabul, they massacred 100 people in the border town of Kandahar. They are right now doing a massacre in Panjshir province, which is the last stronghold. They're, they're killing people, and there are videos coming out of people who are surrendering, but they're shooting them. So in Taliban, there are two or three groups. Uh, there is 
there are the moderates who uh, have been in, in Doha negotiating, and there are the uh, you know the hardlines, hardliners who are pretty vicious. They, you know, killing is 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 not a problem for them. They have been killing people in suicide bombs for last 20 years. So they're acting. But as soon as you, the, the international society, the, the countries of Europe, US and others, then recognize them and they are sure that, you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, there's, I am certain that they would, they would come back to their, their old policies because right now they're hoping to be recognized and they're hoping to be uh, helped and, and their, their money be uh, and frozen. That's why they're acting. But but they haven't changed their ideology. They're not. They don't believe that these people should walk around <laughs> uh, uh, because all of them helped uh, the U.S. In, in one way or another. And so we've heard the Taliban say things like, um, you know, women are going to be safe in Afghanistan and that uh, they'll continue to be able to go to school and, and live lives that they had been living uh, for the last 20 years. Uh, it sounds like you don't believe that either. Again, I, I am really hopeful that, that some level of uh, liberty for, for women uh, uh, are given to women. But w- what I don't believe is that the, the women are able to work. I, I think what's going to end up happening is they may allow them to work as doctors or nurses or teachers, but will not have uh, a meaningful presence in the government or other institutions. There was a interview with a, one of the, one of the uh, leading Taliban members, and uh, his answer was, "Why would we allow? What is the need for women to be part of the cabinet? Why women? Right?" And the journalist asked, "Why not? I mean, they're half of the the population. Why not be in 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 the cabinet?" Uh, and his answer was, "Well, women are not made." To, to be in leadership positions. They cannot do the job. They need to go back and raise mujahideen, raise freedom fighters who can defeat 40 countries. That's what they're good at. That's what they should do. Uh, they should not be in public spaces. They should not be in, in, in the cabinet. So the fear many of us have had here for the people of Afghanistan and the women of Afghanistan is well-placed. That's what I hear you saying. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We... The world has given up on uh, human rights in Afghanistan. They have given up uh, in women's rights and, you know, any sort of liberty. Uh, so, so they, you know, there's no hope for for any sort of, you know, even nominally free uh, society there. It's going to be heavily policed and Sharia law will be in place in its most extreme form. Uh, because these people are, you know, Salafis, and these uh, uh, Taliban believe in the in the most strict form of Sharia law uh, you can imagine, and that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, you see clerics taking over, and and those clerics are are the most extreme. Uh, lots of our cabinet members that right now Taliban appointed are actively under U.S. U.S. has a bounty on on their head right now, five million uh, for one one minister. So these are people who have killed people inside and outside Afghanistan in in vicious terrorist attacks. (sighs) Fuck, Noor. So let me just say to you, I'm just so sorry to hear all this 
um, of course I've been reading it and you know, like everybody, but to hear it from you, um, I'm just so sorry. And I, I want you to know I'm praying for your family and I'm praying for Afghanistan. Now, one question is, you know, the Biden administration, I believe President Biden himself, have come out and said that given the Taliban took over so quickly, and we've been told, although there's debate if this number is true, that the United States trained 300,000 Afghanis to uh, defend and protect the country. But the narrative we hear coming out of the uh, Biden administration and Biden himself is, hey, listen, if Afghanistan wouldn't fight for itself, uh, why should we? What's your reaction when you hear that, Nor? I, I don't believe that uh, because uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, the, the Afghan uh, army was fighting almost by itself uh, since 2014 with the U.S. support. Of course, uh, the U.S. built a military in its own military's image, which is, is another debate whether that was uh, the right way to do it or not. But you know, they have been doing the fighting, uh, frontline fighting since 2014. The U.S. was in support role, uh, logistics and, and air support and whatnot. So um, what happened that the Afghan military all of a sudden stopped fighting and Taliban took over? Well, a few things happened. The logistics support for them was taken away. The air support was was taken away. And and the reason I, it's my own theory, and, and it's, there are indications of it, but, but here's what I believe happens, and that is the U.S. Uh, was facing a stalemate. They tried uh, to do a peace deal between the Afghan government and the Taliban, and uh, that wasn't very promising. I think the challenge was we could do a peace deal, but how are we going to do peacekeeping? The Afghan government does not have the capacity to do to keep this piece together. So we are we are facing a stalemate no matter what. So how do we get out, right? How do we get out uh, in the right way? And they, you know, the option was can we partner with Taliban? So that was when the negotiations uh, started with with the Taliban and Taliban given give some assurances. And the deal was that. Taliban would take over the entire country, but the capital and the capital, we will, will work some 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 transition government uh, heavily under the control of the Taliban, and you would give it to them in a in an orderly fashion, and then we would we would be out of there. And so, you know, really, you know, we we can't do anything about the human rights or anything else. But the Afghan president was very stubborn, so he didn't accept that uh, uh, until the end, and and instead of resigning. He left the country and that created a power vacuum and then the whole plan fall apart. And that's why, you know, this whole, uh, you know, this, this, this really tragic uh, evacuation process that was so disorganized happened because nobody would, was expecting that President Ghani would, would not resign. So that's what I think the, the world made a deal with the Taliban. And then our former president called a lot of these these frontline core commanders and say and said, you know, we have a deal, give it, uh, uh, give everything to Taliban, uh, let let them take over. Those phone calls were received by the core commanders across the uh, across the country. Um, so it was a deal. It wasn't that the Afghan army did not fight. And so the deal, as you understand it, was the Taliban will have the vast majority of the country, and um, 
the democratic government would still have Kabul and the Kabul area? Um, for some time. But, but in my opinion, the, the, the model that they were uh, looking at was the model of Iran or Lebanon, right? So Iran has a supreme leader. The, the religious nuts are, are controlling the, the entire country. But there is an election and the government and, and the civil uh, services and, and, and the services that are offered to the citizens are managed by civilians. But everything else is uh, controlled by the Quds force and, and, and the supreme leader himself. I think a, a similar model was in Lebanon where, uh, you know, Hezbollah controls everything, but there is a civilian government that is that's uh, mainly functioning in, in, in civilian areas. So that's what I think they were trying to get to. Um, but then, you know, uh, they, they took over and even that was not possible anymore. So they, you know, they ended up making an entire fully Taliban regime uh, and instead of, you know, creating a, a civilian government um, that was uh, just a placeholder. Thank you for that. My understanding, having been to um, Lebanon, to Beirut, um, I have a friend who grew up there and I went to visit him and his family several years ago. Experiencing it firsthand was 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 that, that uh, it was very clear Hezbollah is in charge. Um, but if you were a Christian uh, and you generally behaved yourself, life was going to be OK. You could have you could run a business, you could do your thing and. There was, there was clearly a set of rules, some of which may have been written and some of which may not have been written. But if you understood sort of, I can remember us going out to, um, to have a nice evening in downtown Beirut, which is a beautiful place. And my friend saying to me, now, look, we're going to go into this place. It was kind of a restaurant bar, kind of big entertainment type place. And he said, there's going to be a lot of Hezbollah in here. And he said, under no circumstances, look at any of their women. Yeah. Because we don't want to be in a fight with these guys. Right. And things along, you know, many things along those lines. And so there's sort of these rules that if you behave, the sort of, um, you know, overlords, if I could call them that, will kind of let you live your life. If you break those rules, you're in a shit ton of trouble. Is that sort of what the best case scenario hope was, you think? Well, in Lebanon, uh, I would say that uh, even Hezbollah is not as radical as Taliban are, right? Hezbollah would, as you said, would give you your personal freedom, at least. If you behaved, you could have entertainment, you could go to a restaurant, you could, you could wear the clothes you want to wear, uh, you could go to be the beach, uh, those sorts of things. Um, but the Taliban, you know, form of that model would be much more strict. So, the civilian government would be in place. You could, you know, but but all of your things, everything that that you can do, only the things that is allowed by the strict form of Sharia law. But if you go beyond that, then that's punishable, right? So the best case scenario would have been a civilian government, at least uh, with some technocrats. Uh, who knew what uh, what they were doing? You know, at least some services would have been uh, delivered in an orderly manner. But I don't think the situation would have changed uh, much uh, in terms of the personal freedom and the human rights and the women's rights. So, to the best of your understanding, you know, we had, had I, I'm not sure in the United States when the mission changed in the in the beginning, shortly after 9/11. Of course, the mission was very clear. 
which was to get Osama bin Laden and to destroy Al-Qaeda's ability to um, ever again prosecute a terrorist attack in the United States or on American allies. That, that seemed very clear at that time. Somewhere along the line, it turned into nation building and trying to create a U.S.-style democracy in Afghanistan. What's your sense of sort of when that shifted and if that was ever going to work? Or, you know, I'm very curious what the Afghani perspective on that evolution from the, the United States is here to uh, kill Osama bin Laden and to dismantle al-Qaeda when it shifted into nation building. What was that sort of cycle, that process like for uh, you and, and, and Afghanis? So uh, I think um, the, the initial hypothesis of, of the U.S. government was uh, nation building, right? Uh, uh, you know, aside from, from the defeating al-Qaeda and, and, and Taliban, which happened very quickly at the beginning. They made some mistakes of, of not bringing them back to, you know, and, and negotiated a deal with them at that time because they were weak. And we could have done this, uh, this, this um, you know, we could have brought them back in, in, in some way where didn't have uh, a lot of say. But, you know, they, they made some mistakes there. The initial hypothesis was to build a democracy, a democracy in a country uh, that is in the middle of Asia that could be uh, an example for other nations. And therefore, if we build this democracy and capitalism and this example of prosperity in this in this part of the region, uh, then that would uh, allow us to influence and, and have al uh, alliances with other countries as well. Now, that hypothesis was uh, was ch you know changed. They understood that that's not possible right now because you know the way uh, it might have been possible if they approached it in a crawl, walk, run uh, way. Um, but but what they did was instead they went and they give these contracts to people the way the same way you would give them in the US and all of a sudden billions of dollars came into to the country a very poor country that they had no way of managing or absorbing that kind of wealth and that kind of change so nation building wasn't successful there was instead a lot of corruption was created but then nation building you know they should have understood that this is a process you are going to a country that is uh, third world that are that's heavily religious that is heavily uh, traditional uh, and you're uh, trying to uh, introduce a concept that is shocking for people so they could have done this this nation building but in a slow um, walk you know crawl walk run way in a sort of how they did it which you know all of a sudden you know people were living under this really really closed and religious society for five years. And then all of a sudden you introduce this, this concept of democracy where now, you know, yesterday a woman couldn't walk around with without a burqa. Now she's on the street dancing. You know, that that is that's a big transformation. It's it, it was a it was a good stuff, but a good thing to do, but you know, we could have done done it in a in a in a much slower way than what was done. And, uh, you know, I'm no doctor or psychologist or sociologist, but in terms of the corruption, it seems fairly predictable to me. Uh, human nature being what it is, you have a very co poor country. Uh, the people in leadership positions 
all of a sudden now have more money than they could ever have imagined, it would take a special individual not to be corrupt. And so the, 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 the stop change start and the influx of billions and billions, it, I don't know, it sort of seemed like we were asking for it. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, I, I was part of that uh, process, working with the U.S. military then, and you know there was no capacity, right? They, they, so, so how do you find local businesses that you could give these contracts to? There, there weren't local businesses at all, uh, right? So what they did was they found the most corrupt uh, warlords who had uh, a mini army and, and give the contract to them. And their the, the rationale was that if we give these people the contract, they would also provide security for us and they would be, um, you know, a partner for us. So, but what happened was that this large amount of money given to these warlords turned those warlords into, into bigger problems, right? Um, uh, so, so all of a sudden you saw the rise of warlords, millionaires who were walking around with, uh, driving around these fancy cars, made little mini armies for themselves, and all of a sudden demanded more power from the government, and they got it because they had money. So I, I guess not only the influx of billions of dollars, but those billions of dollars were given to the bad actors. And instead of you know building businesses, bringing capacity, bringing some American Western companies to to come in, fill first. Uh, help create small businesses and 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 mentor them and 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 build uh, you know capacity for the local businesses to handle projects like this. They just just give it to people, and, and those people never delivered on those projects. So every school you see, every building you see that was funded by the U.S. is dysfunctional now because you know they they pocketed the money and they just built uh, a piece of uh, useless building or or whatever service that they were providing fuck 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 that's and of course now all of those resources that weren't in the hands of the taliban all of the uh military capabilities whether it's machine guns and ammo and all of that stuff now the taliban has yeah taliban are more armed than the ukrainian military uh at this point you know, uh, they're they are well armed and, you know, uh, around $80 billion worth of equipment is what, what, what they have currently. And they have a, they've just taken 35 million people uh, uh, hostages. You know, it, it's a pretty tragic thing, you know, to take away all the freedom that you enjoyed for 20 years. And just now you have to walk around in burqa or you have to be forbidden from wearing pants, or you have to be forced to uh, grow beard or wear a turban. And those things are, are coming. Those things are coming. And so um, this is going to sound like a dumb question, but I, I, I'm just curious for you, maybe if you could paint a picture for me. If I'm one of your 20 loved ones who you're trying to get out right now, or if I'm any of the roughly 4 million people in Kabul who you described, you know, how do I feel right now? What's my mindset right now? What, what, what is mentally going on for me? And, and what is going on, you know, physically around me right now, to the best of your knowledge, Noor? So if you are one of those people, two months ago, you 
had a job. Your wife had a job. You had a TV. You had access to internet. Your children were learning about, you know, democracy and freedom and why it is, you know, important. And 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 you had a happy life. You were going to restaurants and you were going to parks and and you just had a normal life, a happy life. Is the life you're describing uh, somewhat similar or relatable to a life that an American or a Canadian or a Western European would recognize? Well, yes. Uh, well, you got, you know, we and you guys here in the United States have a lot of things, uh, nice cars, roads and whatnot. That's not comparable. Right. But what is comparable is, is the personal freedom that you have. Right. You, you, you were enjoying as an Afghan uh, uh, one of the best freedom of press, freedom of religion in the region. Right. You had, you know, somewhat law and order that you, you had due process. You uh, uh, were able to, you know, uh, run a business. Yes, they would recognize that. They, they re- would recognize that. I mean, it was, a, it was a fairly open society. In one night, all of that is gone. And you are a hostage in a city of four million. And now you cannot do any of those things. You have to just you have to change everything from wearing clothes that uh, to to the way uh, you know you were living. Um, all of those those things are changed. You can no longer go to those restaurants or parks or listen to music or any of the things that a normal human being does. Uh, it's all now forbidden. Uh, you're living in a society. You can go to work if you can find a work. You can come home, uh, but that's it. You know, your TVs are now propaganda machines. You, you never hear music. Uh, you may have internet right now, but that may be severely limited in, in the near future. Again, you will be someone that I was uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and, and the only entertainment you would receive, I was receiving was, you know, watching that movie Friday night in my uncle's house. That was the only entertainment you were receiving. And then... You're faced with beatings. You're faced with uh, restrictions uh, around your life, your personal, you know, the way you clothe, the way you, you know, wear your beard. All of those things are controlled by Taliban. Um, and what I've been hearing and reading is is uh, people who had developed some kind of what here we would call a net worth. Uh, maybe they were entrepreneurs. Uh, maybe they were shop owners, what have you. Uh, or various other professions, but they were, Afghanis were able to build up some kind of a net worth over the last 20 years, yes? Yes, uh, yes. And so what's what's happened to that? If I had a, if I was, say, a successful small business owner or something along those lines, and I had sort of saved some money, and I was trying to better myself and, and support my family, and I was kind of trying to build a bit of a nest egg. What's happened to that for me if I'm that kind of individual today in Afghanistan? So if you had a shop, right, or if you were selling something, or if you're a small business owner, you know, some of those may be still open. You could still, you know, uh, people still need groceries, right? So th- th- those businesses may be uh, open. But if you had a service business, if you had a construction business, if you had an internet business, no, those are done. There's nobody to buy your your your, your services anymore. Who, who is going to buy 
award construction uh, projects. Uh, who is going to uh, buy your, uh, you know, Salesforce uh, implementation? Uh, who, who is going to, you know, uh, uh, buy some of the some of the other ERP type services that you provide that you provide? None of those uh, th- those are all done. Um, I have a friend uh, who has an IT company, uh, and he had to let all of uh, his people go. About eighty of them, all gone. Those projects are all gone. Now, you know, the government owed him money. Nobody believes that the Taliban will give them that money that, that the government owned, owed him. So 75% of the economy is gone. Um, uh, the only things that may be open is just, just these small businesses uh, offering these, these you know, grocery stores and, and whatnot. And is the Taliban literally uh, looting people, uh, taking over the banks, uh, any money I might have had in the bank, uh, are they taking uh, people's assets from them as well as destroying their ability to make a living because the economy's gone to gone to shit? Right now, they're not taking their money. What they're saying is we can't allow you to withdraw money uh, more than a certain amount. Uh, one thing that's about the Taliban, they are religious people. So uh, what they're good at is not stealing. So they don't, they don't steal they don't do any of those things, right? Uh, because it's forbidden in their ideology. Um, uh, but they're putting restrictions on how much money you can you can withdraw. But they have no money to keep the other parts of the economy running. They're basically supported by the money that Pakistan gives them. And Pakistan itself is a very, very um, uh, poor country. So... Uh, they're hoping to be recognized by the international uh, community and uh, unlock their reserves in New York and elsewhere. So that's what they're hoping to do. So if I was somebody who had used the opportunities of the last 20 years to better myself, better my family, to to create possibility, to create potential, to create you know s- some kind of abundance, to enjoy life, uh, to be a good provider, to be an entrepreneur... Um, mo- it sounds like most of those opportunities really in a matter of days evaporated. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. Completely evaporated, right? Uh, we had, I was working with this, this startup incubator in, in, in Kabul. They were doing some amazing things. Like they, they were trying to give the small, lo- you know, uh, uh, small loans to people. They were doing this uh, you know, impact investing type thing. I connected them with a few venture capital people. I talked to them and I said, what's what's going on? And he said, well, yeah, we can't. We, we, we shut down. We can't do that anymore. Uh, and, and they were mainly investing in, in business and run by women. And, and that, you know, is no longer possible. A woman cannot be an entrepreneur in the Taliban's uh, mind. So it's, all of that is gone. I'm so fucking sorry, Noor. So how do you feel? How, how are you doing? Well, it has been a pretty tough last couple of weeks uh, because we are in this very, very critical time in, in our business. Uh, we're, we're raising this, this bridge round and, and trying to, you know, keep things moving. But, you know, at this, I was in San Francisco when the first province uh, of, of Kandahar fell uh, to Taliban. And, you know, I was preparing for this board meeting, 
when I was looking at, at these provinces fell one after another, another in a matter of hours. And, you know, I feel like, you know, I have gotten good at, 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 at that because my whole life have been crisis management and handling situations like that. So I, I think I have gotten very good at, at that. But it was even for me, it was very, very hard because, you know, you, you have to run your business and, and do prepare for this, this board meeting. But also this thing is happening. What are you going to do? So it was it was this this time that I was overwhelmed, sad, horrified, trying to contact my family, trying to find out what's going on. Um, because at that point, uh, at that time, I didn't know that they wouldn't massacre. Later on, uh, it was a relief because at least temporarily, they're not doing that. Uh, but at that time, I was really horrified. Like, okay, now they're going to kill all of those people. And how can I get them out? And I, and I called and knocked on every door I, I, I knew. And uh, a lot of people helped me, and, and, and which, which I'm very, very thank, thankful for. Friends and, 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 and colleagues, our investor, Julie, really, really helped open doors and, and, and make connections and, and so on, uh, which if, if it was in a few more days, we could have, we could have gotten them out, but, but they stopped it. Have you personally had any direct contact with a senator, a member of Congress, uh, senior officials at the State Department, you know, any senior folks who have decided that uh, helping you and your family matters? I, I, I did not go directly that route because I knew the bureaucracy because, you know, senator and then the State Department and then going down, uh, all that, that would take days. And I knew we didn't, didn't have days. So what I was trying to do was get a hold of any team on the ground. Um, you know, I got a hold of a couple of special forces teams on the ground. You know, uh, I, we, we, got a, uh, we made this connection uh, with these nonprofits who were trying to get uh, people out of the country, you know, I worked with them. I mean, uh, uh, but but it all happened when when that explosion happened, right? We got them pretty close, but that explosion in the gate happened and killed, um, you know, over 100 people, 14 U.S. Uh, service members, and that basically closed every every uh, door that was that was open to me at that time. So that that homicide bombing set your efforts back. Yes, because that that forced the U.S. military to close all doors, uh, all the gates. They, they stopped their extraction uh, missions, um, and they just focused on processing uh, the people who are already inside the base. Fuck. So, um, tell me about the prospects for your twenty loved ones and the millions in Kabul who. Uh, in one way or another, help support U.S. efforts. Tell me about what you think the prospects are over the coming days and weeks and maybe a few months. Well, I hope, I pray and hope that uh, the U.S. and the international community, you know, understand the fact that you can never trust the Taliban, that those people who worked for the U.S. military and the, the Afghan government will always be vulnerable, no matter what uh, the assurances of the Taliban say, because 
you, you cannot trust them. And, and that is a fact that everybody knows. Um, so I hope that th they could, you know, still put the pressure on to make sure that those people uh, aren't massacred. They should do more to, to make sure that those are not massacred. And they should, you know, do everything they possibly can to get them out. Uh, because, uh, you know, for the rest of their lives, they are a, at best, even if, if they, uh, the, the, the rebranding of Taliban are re, is real and, and they will not kill them, they will be a second-class citizen, a third-class citizen who no, no one will care about. Uh, it, it will be, uh, that will, you know, Afghanistan is facing an apartheid worse than South Africa. So anybody who is not a cleric who has supported the U.S. government, the Afghan government in any form, uh, or if you're an ethnic minority with a different religion, you are a second-class citizen. And, and life is tough uh, when you're that. Um, so, so I hope that they do everything they possibly can to get at least the people who worked with the U.S. military directly out and make sure that the rest of the population um, is not massacred and they can, they can live somewhat normal life. Now, here's my fear about that. If, and I don't know, but maybe you, you can help shine a light. If the Taliban feels emboldened, we defeated the great Satan. They now have, as you mentioned, $80 billion worth of American uh, war-making equipment. So they're stronger now militarily than ever before, unless what I'm reading is wrong. Maybe you can tell me. No, absolutely. They're stronger. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we have this highly emboldened, highly uh, right-wing religious force who feels like they just won the war. Isn't that how they feel? Yes. And they're not shy about saying that in front of uh, the U.S. officials. In fact, uh, the, the U.S. official retweeted uh, a speech by a Taliban member uh, that said that uh, we defeated the great Satan and the, the, the great uh, uh, the United States and 40 different uh, Christian crusaders, uh, countries who are Christian crusaders. And uh, as part of that, he also said that we are not going to kill the Afghans. So the U.S. official retweeted that video because he wanted to tell people that, yes, Taliban gave us assurances that uh, they will not kill civilians. But in that same video, uh, the Taliban leader said that we defeated uh, the 40 countries uh, who are Christian crusaders in, uh, leading, led by the, by, by the U.S. And uh, we did it with some motorcycles and a few guns. So, so, so they're very, very, you know, uh, they're, they're, they are talking about that, you know. They're they, emboldened. And absolutely. so if they're that emboldened and they are actually factually that much stronger militarily, when President Biden or some other state department official says, hey, if you, you Taliban don't do X, Y, and Z, you're not going to like it. Don't they say, hey, we just defeated you. Go, go stick it up your ass, great yeah. Satan. In other words, yeah. the words of the U.S. must be, please correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here, Noor, completely 
Uh, we're a paper tiger. The United States is a paper tiger when it speaks to the Taliban. So they're like, hey, listen, if we want to start abusing women and torturing people and cutting people's hands off and doing all these horrible things, we're not going to listen to any threats from the U.S. You couldn't do shit for 20 years. Yes. Uh, and if you look at the negotiation, the way they negotiated with, with, with the U.S., it was in fact exactly that. Like, look, you know, you're leaving. You want to leave. Uh, you're defeated. Um, so uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna give in. So if you look at that 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 agreement, it is a surrender. It is a surrender to to the terrorists uh, that they initially signed with the United States, and that's because uh, it, it, these people are you know so emboldened, and, and and the U.S. give them a platform in Doha, and they are now. You know, they have relationships internationally and Russia and China and Pakistan are all uh, close allies of them right now. So they're very, very emboldened. And let me tell you, Chris, their ideology, they're not going to stop there. If you believe that they're not going to bring Al-Qaeda back, that's wishful thinking. Um, Because Al-Qaeda is already back, by the way. Uh, senior, Senior leadership came back into Afghanistan. Their agenda is not a nationalistic. They're not going to stop in Afghanistan. Their agenda is religious. And um, uh, their agenda is to take over the world and create caliphate the same way ISIS wanted to do. Uh, so it's the same ideology. Now, tactically, they may not talk about that. But that is why they let al-Qaeda in Afghanistan at the first place, because their agenda was international. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, only for Afghanistan. To make sure I completely understand, you believe, if we go back pre-9-11, uh, that the Taliban welcoming al-Qaeda was because they had a shared agenda, and al-Qaeda's agenda was to was to wreak havoc internationally. The Taliban liked that and supported that, yes? Absolutely, yes. That You know, the ultimate goal, the ultimate dream is a caliphate, uh, is that the entire world is Muslim and the, the Sharia law is in the entire world. Th- that is the ultimate goal of, of one universal and, and just religious system under the white flag of, 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 of the Taliban. Now, they know it's, that is not, you know, it is fantasy. But that doesn't prevent them from pursuing it. That's why Al Qaeda existed. That's why ISIS existed, right? Uh, ISIS agenda was not Iraq or Syria. It was transnational. It was Syria, Iraq, you know, England. It was the United States. It was it was all of those things. Um, these religious uh, nuts, and it's not only for Islam. I think religious nuts uh, everywhere have uh, uh, this international agenda, but specifically the the recent versions of uh, Islamic crazies have international agenda. Uh, And and it it fuels from from the Muslim Brotherhood, right? That's their thought leader, the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, And and their agenda is international. Yes, um, thank you for that. Uh, As we talk, I'm reminded, you may remember this, Uh, General Colin Powell was uh, famous at one point for saying uh, what he called it the pottery barn um, rule, 
which was, uh, if you break it, you bought it. And it was, I think, if I'm understanding it at the time, it was his cautionary way of saying, hey, listen, if we're going to go do shit here, um, we need to understand what we might be getting into and, and sort of think about this. Well, here we are 20 years later, and we did break it, and we decided to leave it, and, and now we've left it in this mess. And so I'm curious, and maybe, maybe people in Afghanistan haven't had time to think about this, but how do people in Kabul and, and, and the 35 million who you now say are, are hostages, uh, sure sounds that way to me, how do they feel about the United States? Um, everybody is very, very angry at Biden and uh, the United States. Uh, and they're saying, well, you know, you made things worse here, right? Because in this 20 years, people endured a lot of pain, right? They were living with, with suicide bombs every day. They, you know, they were... Uh, their, their children were fighting in the front lines, right? Um, and all of this, all of this trauma, 20 years of trauma, um, and, and then bring Taliban back. Well, you could have had a better deal in 2002. You could have had a better deal in 2003. This could have been a completely different scenario because Taliban were very, very weak at that time. They were likely... Uh, would have been satisfied by, you know, much less and accepted a deal, uh, a, a deal with the government. You made things worse at that time. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, the President Karzai, uh, the first uh, uh, initial president of Afghanistan, told uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld and said, "Can we have a deal with Taliban? Yes, they're defeated, but I know my country. That's not going to stay like that for long. So let's bring them to the table. Let's have a." peace deal with them, let's include them. And uh, Donald Rumsfeld said, no, if you do that, the United States will not support the Afghan government. And that was a really, really big mistake. Um, but the chance of a peace deal existed in 2003, in 2005, in 2007, and, uh, uh, but, the, but the U.S. refused. And their policy was, we do not negotiate with terrorists. And and it, it, it allowed it to, be, to get worse and worse and worse and uh, get to a point where they were, they were very, very powerful and then started negotiating from a, a position of weakness. And when you do that, everybody knows you're, you're getting out. You're trying to get out. You're exhausted. Uh, the public opinion is against you. So you're going to get out. So why would I give in? So th they had this 18 months of negotiation and at the, at the end, all the uh, compromise came from the United States, basically surrendered the entire country to them. It's sort of like if, and I remember it well, um, uh, you tell me if this is an analogy that you think would, would land for, for people in Afghanistan, it's sort of a boxer who has the opponent on the ropes is punching that opponent. The opponent looks like they may, um, you know, they may, he may, they may get a knockout. And for some reason, uh, just we stop punching and we let the opponent recover. Uh, maybe the bell rings. So now they have time to go back to the corner and regroup uh, and they come out stronger. And it seems like we did that multiple times. Yes, yes, we, we did that. The, the other thing that, that you're right, I mean, we not only allowed them to, to, to recover and all of that, 
you know, th- this 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 deal basically when you when when it was signed with them that obligated the U.S. government not to deliver airstrikes. And you're right, it, that did that. The, 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 the analogy that you just described, uh, we that was those were the punches that kept them at bay. And with this deal, those punches stopped, and 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 they they, they, they recovered. They became stronger, and not only that, but the the logistics uh, they, they took took those two thousand five hundred uh, U.S. U.S. Uh, service member out. And when you take that out. Uh, them out, you know, the, the Afghan army uh, was built in a way uh, that was depend, dependent on the support of the of the, the U.S. military. So when you do that, um, yeah, it's going to fall apart. Um, it's, it's it, you know, uh, because it's dependent on those logistics and air support. And look, I'm no expert, of course, but I, I've never understood this. Like, if you're going to do it, fucking do it. And, you know, there were points in World War II where the United States was in what most people consider to be uh, a criminal way, firebombing entire cities in Japan. So we do know that when the United States decides it wants to go big, it can. And obviously the United States is the only country on earth to ever drop nuclear weapons. And so uh, what I don't understand is when you have the opponent on the ropes why you don't finish the job. I, I don't understand that. Um, and I guess it's now going to haunt uh, all of us. And most importantly, it's going to be the source of much pain and suffering in Afghanistan. If I'm, if I'm reading what you're saying, right, Noor. Yes. Um, uh, y- y- you could definitely, you could have definitely gone uh, big, um, but you didn't even need to do that. Right. What you, the U S could have done is, put pressure on Pakistan to stop supporting Taliban. Now, Pakistan is effectively fighting India, and, and they had this, this proxy war uh, in Afghanistan. So the reason uh, Pakistan was supporting and, and financing and equipping Taliban was because uh, they wanted that strategic depth there. Because in case if they fight with India, that, that, they, that, that they wouldn't feel threatened from, from the Afghan side. So that was the, their whole reason of why they were supporting Taliban. But, but the, the, the U.S. could have put pressure on Pakistan. They could have made them stop supporting Taliban because support Taliban by themselves are a bunch of illiterate mullahs. You know, the support, the organization comes from the ISI, which is the Pakistani intelligence. The U.S. government and the Obama administration did, took some steps, but not enough to put pressure and sanction Pakistan to stop, uh, you know, killing the U.S. You know, service members in Afghanistan, stop killing uh, innocent Afghans. Now, you know, the ISI chief came in and built their cabinet. So they could have done it this very, very easily by, by putting pressure on Pakistan. I'm, I'm saying easily because, yes, it is complicated. The, uh, Pakistan is a nuclear state, and if you put lots of sanction on it, it, you know, there's a chance that those nuclear weapons uh, uh, could be in the hands of bad actors. But, you know, if you're in the United States, you have ways to put pressure on a country that's supporting terrorism. Uh, and they didn't do that. Yes. Um, w- what now is your hope uh, going forward? What What is the best case scenario 
maybe a, a realistic but optimistic best case scenario uh, for the next handful of weeks and, and months for your home country, Norm? So my hope is that I am wrong and that uh, Taliban are now have, have changed at least in some ways and are more rational. And if, if they're thinking rationally, then they would first not uh, prosecute uh, or persecute people. And if, if they are rational, they need the world's support. So uh, they would build an inclusive government and at least, you know, uh, let women to, to work, uh, to study, uh, to walk around without being uh, punished or, or beaten, some level of uh, personal freedom. You know, that would be great. At this point, that's all I'm expecting because I'm, I don't think, you know, those dreams of a democratic society, that dream of, of you know, freedom that we enjoyed for so long, uh, that is gone. That is not going to come back. Uh, the best case scenario is if, if they f- act rationally a little bit um, and, and the world keep uh, uh, their feet uh, to, to the fire and, and just... You know, if, if you want the money, if you want recognition, you must change. You cannot do what you're doing right now. And uh, the other thing, I'm sorry, I just want to add this. The other thing is there's of right course. now a resistance that's happening led by a very charismatic and an amazing leader, Ahmad Massoud in, in, in Panjshir. That is the first resistance that's happening. And they're, they're saying, you know, we'll stop fighting. But if you... Uh, if you accept our terms of having at least somewhat inclusive government. And and they're being massacred there, but they're still fighting. Uh, so uh, I would, you know, ask whoever, whoever uh, is listening and can to donate, to help and support uh, that that movement. That's the only hope, along with, with everything else that the, the world can do to kind of keep Taliban a bit more humble. And Noor, if you want to uh, give me the uh, where we can donate, uh, I've also personally been looking at the various NGOs that have been in Afghanistan for many decades um, that could help. Uh, for me, I've supported uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders for years, and I know they're in Afghanistan and continue to be in Afghanistan. Um, but if, if there's certain... Uh, nonprofits, NGOs that are helping that you want uh, people to be aware of, just send me those URLs. All that will be in the show notes for this episode for sure. Absolutely. Well, we'll definitely send those to you. And there are two or three that are doing some really, really good work. I, I also have to tell you, and, and of course I understand this as, as, as Afghanistan was falling, I understood it. But to hear you say the dream of freedom is gone it's that's just this heartbreaking for me i'm i'm very sorry i mean i understand that but i'm uh, it's so painful to hear you say it it is very painful it, it, it is imagine christopher for for uh, uh, for for a second that we are in the united states we're enjoying all of these amazing freedom and opportunity and this is an amazing country by the way i mean i, I came to this country with a thousand dollars in my pocket and now 
uh, without even going to college, I have a venture backed business. So only the U.S. can 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 make this happen. But 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 let's let me let me give you an example. You you're enjoying all this freedom. I'm enjoying all this freedom. And and imagine uh, you wake up in the morning and uh, and the KKK uh, took over and 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 they they are you know all of a sudden you can you have none of the freedoms that that you had before you know your culture has changed your clothing has changed you're forced to grow beard you're uh, forced to go to church your wife your daughter is now uh, no longer um, equal human being uh, you know uh, they're restricted they're now wearing this 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 crazy dress uh, you know imagine that right now afghans didn't have the same kind of freedom but it was a pretty good amount of freedom a pretty good uh, 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 you know uh, life so um so so it is painful and i also want to be uh, very clear what the ask is uh from from those of us in the united states those of us in canada and europe and other free countries those of us with a little bit of means what are the things that you want other free people to do to support your country? There's some nonprofits you're going to give me. What, what do you want us to do, say, for example, may, maybe with our elected officials? Yes. So help refugees. Uh, uh, these refugees uh, are uh, people who are coming, leaving that kind of a, a, a society, and they're trying to have a better life. Uh, you know, they may not speak your language. They may not. They, they may not be uh, very familiar to you. Uh, but these are, um, you know, freedom-loving people who are escaping a horrible, horrible situation. So wherever in your cities, in your uh, towns, um, you will likely get some refugees. Uh, treat them well, because I have been a refugee, and uh, and a little kindness. And a pillow and a a bed to sleep, some a cold glass of water, uh, some food, anything, anything uh, is amazing and it's a blessing. So so help uh, th- those refugees, and then call on your elected officials uh, to please, uh, you know, don't forget the history. History was forgotten once before, and and nine eleven happened, and. 9/11, God forbid, will will happen again or worst, right? Um, so uh, take this. Nor if I could, I hate to interrupt you, but obviously we are talking on 9/11. Yes. What do you mean when you say 9/11 could happen again or worse? I'm saying uh, the Taliban of um, 20 years ago were much weaker. They were only relying on Al Qaeda. They, they all they did was allowed uh, Al Qaeda and hosted them. Now they have eighty billion dollar worth of equipment. They have just, in their perception, de- defeated forty different countries, including a superpower. Uh, they are emboldened. They believe they can do everything. You know, uh, if they if they set them set themselves out to, and so now this mission is accomplished. The the international agenda the the caliphate uh, is is still an agenda so uh, whether it's by hosting al-qaeda or taliban becoming an al-qaeda themselves and attacking the united states 
attacking uh, Europe, uh, other countries. You know, it will happen. It's it's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Because because you know when you understand their ideology, they they, they do what their ideology tells them. They do everything they do for God. In their version of God, God commands them to to keep going, to defeat the infidel, to bring Islamic rule around the world. That's what is going to happen. And the world knows that. The, the, the United States knows that um, uh, very well. Uh, so, so the politicians, the congressmen, the senators, my message to, to them is that don't forget, history is going to repeat itself. And it's going to repeat itself probably in, in, in the worst way. Uh, we don't want that happen uh, to the world again. So, uh, and at that point, you know, it, right now, that is very, very preventable right now. Um, you know, ideally, I would ask that you, you know, dethrone them, take them out. But if you can't do that, uh, make sure that they keep their assurances, watch them and don't recognize them and force them to be more moderate if there's a way to do that. And, you know, support the resistance. Uh, there's a resistance uh, right now that's forming. That's, that, that, that is the only hope that can that can keep uh, Taliban a bit more humble. So that's that's that that's what they can do. They can they can make sure the, to hold the, the U.S. government and the other governments around the world uh, responsible and 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 push them to to make sure uh, and prevent uh, tragedy tragedies like that. And if 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 by chance President Biden were to hear this podcast, is that what you'd want him to hear, or what would you want him to hear from you? I want to, uh, him to hear that, you know, it, it, it would have been an amazing political statement to make, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, without the, uh, if, if this evacuation went smoothly, that you have ended the war. But have you? Have you ended the war? I don't think so. Right. The objective of, of removing Al-Qaeda and preventing Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven. That's why you went in uh, the first time. And at that time, your opponents, these, these enemies, were much, much weaker. That, hasn't, that objective hasn't been met yet. It's not. The, the terrorists that you have bounties on their head, $5 million, Sirajuddin Haqqani, who was an, uh, from a, a Haqqani network, and, it, and, and, and they killed a, a, a scores of American servicemen and women and, and Afghans, is now the Ministry of Interior. You think his agenda changed? He's no, no longer a terrorist? He no longer wants to carry out attacks in, in, in the land of the infidel? He does. He, he, his ideology has not changed. So you still have an enemy, uh, and, and the world is still very much vulnerable from that part of the world. I don't know what you can do at this point. I, I think... Uh, but whatever you can do to, to make sure that, that they are not uh, uh, left alone, that the, that, that the world does not forget about Afghanistan, that there's a plan in place to make sure that that doesn't happen and, and, and Taliban are weakened or, or kept in check. I don't know how, but I, I just wanted to let them know that this threat exists. Uh, the agenda has not changed. The ideology has not changed. And to Americans who say, Noor, that, um, hey, listen, we've been there 20 years. 
Um, the United States is not the world's police uh, force. We, we spent tremendous American lives and American treasure. It, it's painful to see, but hey, man, you're on your own. This is your problem, not our problem. What, what would you say to people who have that mindset? Well, it's, it's, it's not our problem uh, alone. It was our problem when the world did not invade Afghanistan. You know, it was our problem. We were dealing with it. But it wasn't our problem alone. You know, it became your problem, right? So uh, you didn't come there, uh, you know, to solve our problem, but you came there to solve your own problem. That problem has not been solved. 20 years, uh, $2 trillion, half a million lives, uh, and a 20-year-old trauma. That problem has not been solved. So, so what, what, you know, the, the solution is not necessarily a military one. It, I don't think it ever was, right? But there are other ways uh, to solve this problem. As I said, you know, you have tremendous influence in the world stage, including on, on Pakistan, if you want to. Uh, if, if you want to, you can, can keep them accountable because uh, they are the ones who are su- uh, supporting Taliban. And th- that's their client. Uh, Taliban are um, uh, Pakistan's client state. So, so there are other ways you can, you can make sure that, that the Taliban and any other extremists don't flourish. Uh, so, so use those influences, use those powers. Keep bad actors like Pakistan in check, but militarily, I don't think you know it will it will go anywhere. And it's you know you have this this big military that's designed to work, designed to fight big wars, uh, and you build another military in Afghanistan in the same way. And the enemy is not a state, and the enemy is just fights in a in a different way. So your military involvement is not going to uh, uh, to, to defeat that, but there are other ways you can. You can defeat them. Wow, Nor. I can't imagine being in your shoes. I also want to thank you for being a legendary example of immigrant entrepreneurs. It's, it's extraordinary to me in my, uh, I, I, you may not realize, I, I, I'm an immigrant to the United States as well from Canada, but that, that is very far from being a refugee. Uh, so I'm not trying to make that analogy. But um, as somebody who chose to come here, as somebody who's worked in technology and entrepreneurship for more than 30 years, I've been amazed since I moved to Silicon Valley, nor the percentage of entrepreneurs that I have worked with who are also immigrants who are not native born who take advantage of the U.S. And w- one of my dreams is that more Americans will be entrepreneurs the way immigrants are. But for you to come here as a refugee with almost nothing and to build a forward-leaning, exciting, venture-backed software company that's committed to producing a breakthrough in education for people, you're an extraordinary um, uh, entrepreneur and a very inspiring man. And I am so sorry that you are living this and that your family back in Afghanistan is living this. Uh, My wish for you is the only thing you had to worry about was your next financing. The only thing you had to worry about was how do I build a legendary category and company and technology and to take care of my customers and, and, um, and, you know, maybe should I go public or shouldn't I go public or all of the things that uh, I know that I want 
legendary entrepreneurs focused on. And so uh, I just want to acknowledge you for who you are and for the extraordinary courage that you seem to be summoning at this moment. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. It, it, uh, I I really am um, uh, lucky and I'm I'm, I'm really, I I, I guess, lucky to be be able to have the opportunity uh, and blessed to to come to the United States. uh, and uh, um, you know this this country you can only uh, you can only appreciate it truly if you have experienced uh, the other side of it the life uh, uh, that, that is not uh, nearly as uh, as amazing as as the life here in the United States so you know as a as a refugee you mentioned a lot of a lot of immigrants are becoming entrepreneurs and 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 the reason I believe is that um, if if I look at my life, you know, from six year old when I was six year old, and when I think about it, I have been faced with solving problems, dealing with crisis, crisis after crisis, problems after problem, whether that's economic, whether that's wars, regime changes, protecting, um, you know, the family, um, making money, everything that that. That I have gone through um, have been solving problems. So I think one of my theory is that that's why I think uh, I'm better suited, at, uh, uh, and I love this job, and I'm uh, to some extent good at it. Is because you know naturally I have, I have, I have, I have uh, my whole life has been you know solving problems. So it's a privilege to 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 be in this country and it's to have this opportunity to to give back to the world. And and uh, just I'm I'm really blessed to to know the people I know to uh, work with the people I work and uh, to have the business that is really really um, that I'm really passionate about that, that I feel like I'm making uh, making a difference. No no doubt you are, Norm. Is there anything else, brother, that you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, thank you. I wanted to thank you, Christopher, really uh, for making this happen uh, and, and and hopefully this will be helpful for uh, people to understand uh, what's going on in Afghanistan and hopefully uh, uh, you know it will be helpful in for spreading the word uh, uh, about what's happening in that country and hopefully the nonprofits and all of uh, the other great organizations that are working to help people um, will receive uh, donations and and in some way we can help that country uh, in some way, shape or form. Yes, that, that is my hope too. And I want to also thank you for stepping forward into this uh, void. Uh, we, I believe in America, have lost the ability to have authentic dialogue and civil discourse. We have to find a way to speak with each other. And for you to stand up um, as an Afghani at this time, and to bring forward your heart and share your life and share your story, I think it's very important to humanize what's happening here. Because it's very easy to turn on the news or fire up your web browser and see people chasing a plane and to not be that affected. The reality is those are fucking people. Yes. And the only difference between you and me is where we were born. And I had about as much say about where I was born and to who I was born as you did. Very true. 
And so I really thank you for coming forward. Um, we have to understand um, the 20 people that you're trying to get out of the country and the 35 million people who are now being held hostage. These are people just like us. And we could have been born there just like you were. Yes. All right, Nor. is there anything else? No. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, it was an honor to talk to you and, and be in, uh, in this podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Noor. Bless you. Bless you. Take care. Well, there he is, Noor Akbari. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And um, please um, consider making a donation to help our Afghani sisters and brothers. Check out the show notes for uh, this episode at lockhead.com. And uh, you'll see the list of nonprofits that Noor recommends. They include outfits like noonleft.org and keepingourpromise.org and womenforwomen.org and several others. Again, go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode. Also, I want to say a heartfelt, super special thank you to the legendary Julie Allegro Maples. Uh, she's a general partner at Firefly Ventures. She's the investor that Noor talked about in this conversation, and uh, she was the one that made this podcast happen. Thank you, Julie. And I sure would love it if you came on the podcast one day as well. All right. We would like to thank our good friends at Malibu Milk, milk spelt with a Y. Did you know that a glass of almond milk is both bad for the environment because it takes about one gallon of water to make one gallon of almond milk? And it's not that great for you because almond milk is actually mostly almond flavored nothing. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, California is in a horrible drought right now. And um, a huge percentage of California's water goes to uh, growing almonds. Malibu milk, on the other hand, is the world's first whole plant organic flax milk created by a mom. And Malibu milk is a small, tasty change that makes a very big difference. So visit Malibu milk, milkwithay.com today, or check out Malibu milk on Amazon. My friends at Hallow App are here to make things real, and they're a very different approach. They're the opposite of what most social media has become. Imagine a world with no ads, no bots, no likes, no trolls, no followers, no algorithms, no influencers, no censorship, no photo filters, no feed fatigue, no misinformation, and no echo chambers. Hallow App is the world's first real relationship app from the people who brought you WhatsApp. Check out HallowApp.com or search for Hallow App, H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P, in your app store on your phone. All right, I need to remind you that this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced and edited by the GOAT himself, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Technical Awesomeness and Lockhead.com by uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Uh, GM Simon does, uh, uh, the handsome and talented GM Simon does our show notes. And um, I just want to say a deep heartfelt thank you to all of our service member heroes who sacrificed so much for both the American people and the Afghani people. I also want to thank all uh, military families and service members, and I want the people of Afghanistan to know um, that we're praying for you. 
Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Ashraf Ghani. Sorry, Mr. Prime Minister. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Please stay safe and stay legendary. Until we hang out again, follow your different.